Good morning. We have reached that point in our service where we open up the, the word together and see what God has to say to us. Uh, if you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Tarek George. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and if you're just joining us, we are in a sermon series looking at the book of Ephesians, namely looking at what is the gospel and what does it mean for life uh, here on earth as a body, uh, as Christians, as, as we interact with the rest of the world. And so if you open your bulletins, you'll re- see our scripture reading for today. It's Ephesians 4. And to read for us today is Haley. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading today is from Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Haley. You never turn your back on family. You may recognize these iconic words from Dominic Toretto in that blockbuster film series, The Fast and the Furious. (laughs) Now in its 10th installment, the film series is something to behold. From street racing to national heists to global espionage, it is fair to say that no other movie franchise pushes the bounds quite like this one. You will laugh, cry, and cheer as you watch cars driving in the streets, cars driving underground, cars driving in the jungle, on the beach, over ice, and even in deep space. (laughs) (laughs) And yet you would be forgiven for thinking that this series is about fast cars, explosions, and white knuckle gear shifting. It might surprise you to hear that the central themes of these movies is actually about family. Family. You see, every movie focuses on some real and pressing situation that affects Dom's ever-growing extended family. It is almost as if new and exciting brothers and sisters, each more handsome than the last, continue to emerge from this cinematic woodwork that is Universal Pictures. And with each new film, it is up to Dom to figure out how to keep his family together in the face of insurmountable odds. And yet, what we find is that he is always successful. He's always successful, not just because of his own tenacity, but because the unity of this family is a value that is shared by each of its individual members. You see, as we come to our text this morning, I think the Apostle Paul illustrates a similar idea for us. He explains how the church is to be like a family. It is an ever-growing extended family that is constantly receiving new brothers and new sisters into its care. And yet, like every family, it too has its own challenges to unity, peace, and togetherness. And that's why Paul writes this message for us this morning. Because what will ultimately determine the success of this church family is the degree to which each individual member here values its inherent unity. And so Paul here invites us to maintain the unity of the church in two ways. First, by treating each other rightly, 
and second, by seeing each other rightly. Treat each other rightly and see each other rightly. We'll look at these in the text. Well, some context is probably helpful here. As Paul explains in verse one, if you're looking at the text, he is a prisoner. In fact, he's writing this letter to the Ephesians from a jail cell where he has been imprisoned for his faith in the Lord Jesus. Why? Well, it's because what he's teaching is causing quite a stir among the Jews. If you read Acts 22, you will learn that Paul was put on trial because he claimed that all believers, Jews and non-Jews, everyone has equal access to God now through faith in Jesus Christ. He's teaching that there's a fundamental unity that now exists between all believers, regardless of their race, language, or former practices. In other words, he's in prison because he insists that all kinds of people can now be part of God's family freely. He's in prison because he believes in the unity of the church. And it's so critical to the gospel that he wants you and I to believe in it also. And so he begins in verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, what is this calling? What does he mean? Well, if you've been tracking with us over the last several weeks, Paul has been explaining this in the previous three chapters. He's told them about the work of the triune God and their salvation. Namely, how God the Father has loved us and chosen us before the foundation of the world. How God the Son has redeemed us through his life, death, and resurrection. And how God the Spirit has applied the benefits of this salvation to us now by faith. Now, there's a lot to unpack there if you're just joining us. But the gist of it, I think, is this. Basically, he summarized how we have been forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and now adopted into this new family through Jesus Christ. This is our calling, and we are now asked to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. What does he mean? Well, Paul uses this word walk as a figure of speech. It is a metaphor for forward movement and progress in the Christian faith. He's telling them how they are to grow and mature now that they have, in what they have believed and confessed as a faith. In plain language, then, he is telling them to walk the talk. Walk the talk. If we truly believe that we have been called to belong to God's family, what should our attitude be towards other family members? How are we to treat one another inside the church? Verse two, Paul responds that we are to cultivate several family qualities. We are to walk or conduct ourselves with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is how the church family is meant to conduct itself. This is how Christians are meant to treat each other in view of our unity. Now, if you're here and exploring the Christian faith, I would imagine that you've seen some real disunity in the church up to date. Perhaps the kind of church Paul is describing here looks very little like the kind of church you've encountered in your previous experience. You may be wondering, why would I join myself to this community of people who can't even practice what they preach? Isn't the church just hypocritical? Doesn't their behavior negate the truth and value of the gospel? And those are good questions. And I grant you, you might be right. But let me ask you this. 
Is what you see in the culture around you that much better? Is our society that much more unified? You don't have to look too far in our city, I think, to see that there's profound disunity everywhere. We've tried to unify our society around these ideals of diversity, equity, inclusion, and tolerance. Where has that really led us? Our culture is so polarized right now that we can't even have a meaningful conversation about our differences. And so we regularly, we regularly cancel, slander, and vilify anyone who doesn't subscribe to our particular ways of thinking. Don't believe me? Just look at our recent news. It took just one interaction between an Edmonton school teacher and several Muslim students to shake our country's sense of unity. These students were publicly shamed and told that they don't belong in this country because their religious convictions require them to abstain from the school's pride celebrations. Did you hear about that? And all of a sudden, we have respected people on both sides actually arguing about whether it is worse to be homophobic or whether it is worse to be Islamophobic. The two causes that our country takes very seriously are now suddenly in radical conflict with each other. Whose set of values do we uphold when the ideals that were supposed to unify our country actually divide them further? You see, this problem of disunity affects everyone. In fact, if you read the Bible, you realize that it's actually, it's actually a human problem. But, wouldn't it be great if our culture looked a little bit more like what Paul describes here? What would it look like if despite our differences, people conducted themselves with humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love? Wouldn't that kind of unity be beautiful? Because that is precisely what Paul is calling the Christian church here to maintain. Look with me at verse three. Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why does he urge them with these words? I think it's because there will always, always be circumstances and issues to divide over. I mean, if there was no disunity in the church, Paul would have no need to exhort the church to maintain its unity. As it is, however, he writes these words because this is what the church really needs. This is what the church really struggles with at times. We get into conflicts and disagreements, sometimes really heated ones that split the church, create division, and really, really wound people. Our church, Grace Strano, has been no stranger to conflict in previous years. The church throughout history is neither. Paul is not naive about the state of the church. He seems to expect here that conflict and disunity will inevitably emerge. In fact, he actually anticipates it. And yet, if you were to talk to the average Christian in North America, you will find that this is not something that we have been conditioned to expect. The moment we see even the slightest bit of tension or conflict in the church, we're often quick to assume that there must be something wrong with that congregation. Because surely a church that is walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called will never land themselves in any kind of trouble or controversy. Right? We functionally believe that, don't we? 
And so we spend our lives bouncing from one congregation to another, comparing, critiquing, and looking for the perfect church where there's no messiness, no conflict, no crises, and no disunity whatsoever. But it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So sooner or later we grow tired and frustrated with the big C church and decide that it's just not worth our time. Or we don't commit ourselves to membership anywhere because that's what feels comfortable and safe and truly uncomplicated. Or we grow cynical and critical about the church. Now all we're able to see are the flaws and weaknesses of every congregation that we are a part of. You see, I think the truth boils down to this. If you don't have a realistic picture of the church and what it's like, you'll either abandon it completely, disengage functionally, or worse, you will become the very thing that you hated most about church in the first place. And that would be a real tragedy. I think Paul wants to prevent any of these scenarios. I think actually that's why he gives us these qualities for each of us to practice within the church family. Look with me at verses two to three. Paul asks us to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. Now Paul could mention many things, many qualities that are surely good and important for the Christian faith. So why? Why does he mention these in particular? I mean, you don't ask, find Paul asking us to be wise or to be brave or even to be good. No, it's not that these things are not important, you understand. But what Paul is doing is zeroing in on relational values. Every trait listed here is incredibly important for good, healthy relationships among people. These are qualities that are meant to promote unity and peace within the church. Remember, Paul's concern is that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In other words, he's informing us that how we behave is a direct result of what we believe. How we behave is a direct result of what we believe. He's reminding you and I that we are sinners called by God into his amazing grace. And as we've been called, we are simultaneously engaging with other sinners in the church who have also been called by God into this same grace. I mean, that might sound utterly obvious to you. But do we actually think about that when we engage with each other? When we gossip, when we critique, when we pass judgment? How much grace do we really have for our brothers and sisters, for our small group leaders, for our pastors, for our elders? Listen, your calling as a Christian changes everything. It changes everything. If you don't understand the sheer amount of grace that God has shown to you, you will never have enough grace for everyone else in this family. It's true. That's what Paul is saying here. I mean, just pause for a moment and consider this. Do you know how much patience God exercises with you and I? Do you know how much he bears with us every day, with our sin, our selfishness, our apathy, our unbelief? Do you know how gentle he is to correct you and me and guide us in his ways? It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. He does these for us with tremendous kindness because he loves us. He loves us. 
and he means for us to do the same for each other also in love. Paul is saying here that if you have a proper view of yourself in the gospel, you will have an appropriate view of everybody else in the church. You won't put people on pedestals, but neither will you hammer them when they don't meet your expectations. This is what your calling, properly understood, should lead to. So think about that. Think about that as you engage with the family. Be humble, be gentle. Practice patience and forbearance with each other. Pursue love. Now, all this is not to say that we should never confront or challenge each other about anything. Don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul asks us in verse 3 to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sometimes maintaining unity requires us to speak. We have to speak and act in love. It may mean that we need to advocate for something good and true in the family maybe confront something that is sinful or harmful in the family. So, how do you know if it's an issue you have with someone? How do you know if it's actually worth pursuing? Well, I think Paul would ask us to consider this question. Is what I'm about to say or do actually creating unity and peace in the family? Am I being motivated by love and care for the family? Or am I being motivated by my own agenda and self-interest? Ask those questions and consider your motivation as you raise issues within the family. At the same time, consider the issue itself. Pastor Dan has a model for this that I found quite helpful in my own life. He encouraged me once to consider whether the issues I have with other Christians are sinful, serious, or serial. Here's what that means. First is the issue I want to raise sinful enough as an act in itself. That is to ask, is someone doing something that is contrary to scripture and dishonoring to God? Or is it just something that I myself find off-putting or offensive? Second is the issue serious enough in consequence. That is to ask, is the impact of what someone else is doing really significantly affecting me or other people? Or is it just something trivial that I can bear with them in love? And third, is the issue serial in practice? That is to ask, is someone repeatedly doing something that is negatively affecting me and others? Is their behavior a pattern that needs correction? Or is it maybe just an isolated instance that probably doesn't need to be raised? You know, it's hard to have clear-cut rules about how we should approach these things, but these are some principles that I found quite helpful in my own life. I think at the same time, I think we need to be realistic too. Paul certainly challenges us to that. Paul is not saying here that good unity results in no conflict. No, not at all. Rather, he is saying that good unity results in responsible, measured, and thoughtful conflict. Conflict for the good of the family. I would imagine that you probably have conflicts and disagreements with your immediate family. (laughs) I certainly do. You understand that the evidence of familial health is not the absence of conflict. Sometimes conflict shows that we really and truly care about each other and our well-being, and Paul recognizes that. And so he encourages us here to maintain, to be eager to maintain our unity. So approach these things with humility and gentleness. Exercise patience. Be willing to put up with each other's weaknesses, failures, or even immaturities. 
Be eager to love each other well, Paul says. And if you're here this morning and you're not, you're not sure where to start, here's two implications for practice right now. First, practice this with your leadership. Practice this with your leadership. Your elders, staff, deacons, and small group leaders are just ordinary people. They will err. They will make mistakes. And at times, some really bad decisions. Extend grace to them. Give them grace. They will surely disappoint you, if they haven't already, as you will surely also disappoint them. But as that great theologian, Dominic Toretto, so poignantly reminds us, (laughs) you never turn your back on family. Don't do it. God has placed these individuals in leadership positions in this family, and it's hard work. It's really hard work. So humbly receive them, encourage them. Be gentle with your critiques, impatient with the results. Bear with them well and learn to love them in spite of their obvious faults. Second, practice this with your fellow peers. Relationally, who do you find it difficult to consider in a way that is humble and gentle? Who in the church needs your patience? Who in your life is driving you up the wall? Is there someone whom you have wounded with your words? Is there someone whom you are unreconciled with? Ask God to show you these people. And then would you courageously take some steps towards them in love? Treat the family rightly. This is Paul's first point. You know, secondly, Paul also asks us here to see each other rightly. He's just told us how to treat each other. And now he gives us the basis for why we should practice that behavior. He says here, there's one body, verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's that word calling again. He's saying that there's a commonality that we all share. We are united by the same faith and the same spirit. We have the same Lord and the same Father. We are one undivided body. We are one family. Now, I can already anticipate the pushback from both skeptics and Christians. Some of you are wondering if that's the case, and we are all so quote-unquote united. Why are there so many denominations and differences in the church? Isn't that a significant mark of disunity? And that's a great question. You know, as one congregation among many, I think we can affirm that there are many differences between congregations in terms of worship, theology, and governance. We think that God in his mysterious will has even allowed for these smaller differences while also commanding what we hold to be most fundamental to our unity. Indeed, if you read this passage carefully, Paul highlights some of what he believes to be most essential to that unity, regardless of whatever else we may disagree about. Look with me at verses four to six. You have a statement of faith here that affirms God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their individual roles in the gospel. Paul affirms God's character, that he is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. He affirms the means of salvation that is through the Lord Jesus, by faith, visible through the practice of baptism. He affirms our oneness in the church that is Christ's body, animated by the Spirit. And he affirms our ultimate hope, which we know in context is the return of Jesus, the judgment of sin, and the life everlasting. 
And taking all these things together, we also understand implicitly that all the scriptures, all the scriptures of which Paul's letter belongs as God's word to us to teach us, correct us, and train us in faith and practice. Excuse me. The Apostle Paul would certainly not permit us to unite with those who abandon these truths that are clearly affirmed in Scripture. Now, are there other things we wish we could all agree on in exactly the same way? Yes. (laughs) Should we still be diligent to examine our beliefs by the standard of Scripture? Yes. Should our smaller differences affect our unity with other Bible-believing Christians in the church? We think not. We think not. It's worth noticing in the text that it is God who has created our unity and no one else. We dare not divide the family that God himself has joined together. This unity already exists and we're simply asked to maintain it, verse three. So how do we do that? How do we begin to see each other rightly? I wanna suggest to you four ways. First, let's be charitable towards each other. Let's be charitable. I don't think it needs saying that God's kingdom is bigger than our local church. (laughs) There are brothers and sisters in our city and around the world who love Jesus and hold fast to his word, but they do think differently about a number of issues than I think we might. This was surely the case also in the time of the New Testament, and that's okay. That's okay. Let's be charitable towards each other. Secondly, let's be concerned about each other. In every corner of the world, there are brothers and sisters who are thriving in the faith, as there are brothers and sisters who are suffering in the faith. Our indivisible unity as a family means that we care about each other. So as far as it's possible for you, invest some time getting to know your extended family. Read about them, pray for them, give to the work that the Lord is doing through them. Consider partnering with organizations like International Justice Mission, Tear Fund, Compassion International, and Voice of the Martyrs. These are some tangible ways for us to learn to love our extended family well, beyond just these walls. Let's be concerned about each other. Thirdly, let's be thankful for each other. I wanna tell you that the diversity of the whole church means that the gospel ministry is actually that much more effective. One local congregation can't do everything. There are churches in our city that minister to the poor much better than we do. There are churches without reach to the marginalized, immigrants, the elderly, the deaf community, you name it. There are churches who minister through the arts, churches who minister through mercy, churches who minister through evangelism, and every other thing that you can think of. The church is united, yes that doesn't mean that it's uniform. Every local congregation seems to be given a very particular ministry focus from the Lord that may be different from everyone else. And that is a strength, men and women. That is a strength. Grace Toronto, I think you realize that we can't do everything. There are many things we should strive to do better, certainly. However, we also need to realize, I think, that it is arrogant to think that we can do everything God requires and that our city most needs. Rather, it's worth considering what are some things that God has specifically gifted and called our church to do for the sake of the city? 
Because if every single gospel church in this city were to ask that question, we might actually be on a path to working together rather than competing against each other. It is in great faith, I think, that we trust that the Lord will work through the whole sea church to reach the whole city. Let's hope in that. Let's be thankful and grateful for each other. Lastly, let's be committed to each other. When you become a Christian, you are joined to this body of Christ. When I married my wife, her family became my family. I didn't get to choose who I wanted to be related to. It wasn't an option to indicate which relatives I might like to associate with and which relatives I might like to distance myself from. I made a commitment to love my wife, but that commitment also committed me to every other person whom she loves. And so it is with the church. When you are joined to Jesus, his family now becomes yours. Full commitment to Christ cannot result in anything less than full commitment to every other person in his family. And that's really important because it's become trendy and normal in our circles to claim that you don't need to be part of the church in order to have a healthy relationship with God. I want you to see from this text that that kind of behavior and thinking is completely antithetical to the gospel. Membership and meaningful commitment to the church really, really matters. Implications. Grace Toronto, we are a family. So can I encourage you to fully embrace the family? Next Sunday, we're going to have a membership induction where we will be receiving 30 new members into our faith family. In the midst of a culture that puts very little emphasis on commitment to anything or anyone, here are a group of people who have chosen to commit themselves to the family of God. We ought to encourage that. We ought to celebrate that. At the same time, if you're a Christian and you've been attending our church for a year or more, can I encourage you to think about membership? Can you do that, please? We need people to plant deep roots in this community. We need people to serve. We need people to vote and give us good counsel. We need people to take ownership of this church and actually feel a vested interest in the work of this ministry. Listen, God cares about our commitment to his family. So don't just be a regular attendee. Consider becoming a member. And if you are a member, make good on your vows. Seek ways to serve the body and build it up. Welcome those who are new and practice hospitality. Get to know our staff, pastors, and elders. Think deeply about our church's vision and direction. Find ways to partner with us. Make it a priority to actually be here for congregational meetings. And don't just skip out. Pray for the unity of this church family because we could really, really use it. We need you, and every member counts. Whatever it takes, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's what Paul is saying. Because that is precisely what our Lord and our Savior committed himself to also. Jesus, on the night he was to be betrayed, prayed this prayer on the behalf of the church family. I want you to listen to what he says. 
He prayed, Father, I ask that they, that is all believers, may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So that the world may know that you sent me and you love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's this prayer, my friends, of Jesus that moved him to give up his life so that all kinds of people everywhere could be forgiven of their sins and united to God in eternity. You see, Jesus became a prisoner for the Lord in the most painfully poetic way. He stood on trial before God for our sins and he accepted the penalty that was due to us so that you and I could be free. He walked in a manner worthy of the calling to which he had been called, knowing full well that it would lead him to the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus conquered pride with humility, cruelty with gentleness, and hatred with love. He exemplified forbearance as he submitted himself to insult, torture, and excruciating death. And he endured these things with patience, with patience, because he knew that it was necessary to rescue the family whom God so deeply loves. And that is the wonderful news of the gospel that the church throughout history has celebrated and that we celebrate every single Sunday. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to put your trust and faith in Jesus. As you probably realize from today's message, the church is not a perfect people. But it is a people who are being perfected by the God who has called us. And so if you sense today that he may be calling you also, would you come talk with us after the service? We'd love to help you think about and consider what it might be to be part of his family the family of God. For the Christian here, you know that Christ is resurrected and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning as the head of the church. And to ensure that the unity of this church is maintained and the prayer of Jesus is answered, he has sent his spirit into your life to help you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It is through him that you have the power to accomplish all the things that we've been talking about this morning. So now you exercise that power and you walk in obedience to Jesus. Treat each other rightly and see each other rightly for the good of the church and for the good of the city that we live in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the unity that you have created in the church. We thank you for the ways that you have sent Jesus and used him as a prisoner of the Lord to take upon himself all our sin and all our shortcomings so that you might finally make peace, peace between human beings and peace between God. And we ask that you would help us as a church family to value peace between each other and unity in our church and in the whole church family. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Lord and Lady, we have some time for Q&A, but because it's a special Sunday and Father's Day, we want to give you 
some ability to leave fairly quickly and celebrate and enjoy that. But if you have some questions, you can uh, come chat with me after the service or email Tarek at gracetoronto.ca. Uh, we're going to move to our song of assurance now. <laughs> 